I want to begin this morning by reminding you of where we are in Mark's gospel. So we're jumping right into the middle of Jesus answering the questions of his disciples. And this is at a time that Jesus knows that he is about to die for the sins of his people. So his words have great weight to them. There is an urgency about what Jesus has to tell us. Jesus had left the temple foretelling its destruction. It was no longer a place of prayer. It was no longer a refuge for those turning to the Lord. But it had become a hideout for thieves. People hiding behind religious acts, but not honoring the Lord in their hearts. And, and yet, the, this talk of the temple's destruction caused the disciples to wonder. They wanted to understand this. They wanted to know more. And so Jesus first warns them about many false alarms. In verses 5 through 13 of Mark chapter 13. Before he then begins to address their question head on. And that is what we're going to to look at beginning in Mark chapter 13 verse 14. And in this and the following verses, we see that a sign is given. A response is called for and the Savior's coming is foretold. And we will get into each of those. But I want to begin by reading the passage. We're going to be reading Mark 13 verses 14 through 27. Follow along with me beginning in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, 
after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word and give us wisdom. Verse 14 begins, But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he or it ought not to be. This is Jesus' direct answer to the disciples' question. Chapter 13, verse 4, they asked when they could expect these things, that referring to the temple's destruction, when they could expect these things and the sign of all these things. Now Jesus says, but when you see this. An abominable act will mark the beginning of the temple's destruction. An appalling sacrilege that causes desolation or devastation will signal the temple's destruction. Mark adds here, let the reader understand which is a way of saying to the reader, take note of this clause. Understand the significance of this. It may also remind the reader, at least I like to think so, that he is saying this is going to take some discernment for you to understand. He is pointing the reader to think on this phrase and to seek to understand the meaning of it. And so we're going to spend a fair bit of time just on this one phrase alone. The phrase abomination of desolation carries the idea of something detestable, something repulsive in the sight of God, blasphemous. This abomination Jesus tells us, will be found standing where it ought not be. Now, Matthew specifies for us that he will be standing in the holy place. The abomination will be standing in the holy place, the temple sanctuary. Matthew also adds another detail for us in Matthew 24, verse 15. That the abomination of desolation is spoken of by the prophet Daniel. If you've read Daniel, you have seen this phrase several times. It comes from the visions given to Daniel in the second half of the book of Daniel. And it's recorded in various forms in chapter 8, verse 13. 
where it is there described as a, a transgression that causes desolation. Verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 11. All of these verses refer either to a particular abomination that took place before Christ or an event future to the time of Christ. When we look at the visions of Daniel recorded in chapter 8 and chapter 11, and I will not read them, I have preached on Daniel. If you want to know more, you can either talk to me or read the, the passage. But um, these visions foretell a time when the Greek Empire will split apart into four kingdoms. And one of the kings would set up an abomination that causes desolation. So that is where that phrase occurs in chapter 8, 13, and 11, verse 31. These visions were fulfilled in 167 B.C. when Antiochus IV Epiphanes profaned the holy place. He erected an altar or had his... His men erect an altar dedicated to Zeus, and they sacrificed a pig on the altar there. This is part of the, the background of the people's understanding of that phrase. They knew of this event. It was a part of their history. However, Daniel 9 is similar and yet different. When Daniel refers to the abomination of desolation, verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9 tells us about an anointed one who will be cut off or killed. And verse 27 refers to one who makes desolate coming on the wing of abominations after the anointed one, the Christ, had been cut off. Jesus knew Daniel. He knew all of it. He understood what had happened in the past when Antiochus defiled the temple with his sacrifice. He also knew these verses. And he understood that this prophecy was about to be fulfilled after his death, the death of the anointed one for the sake of his people. So he told his disciples what to expect here. There have been a lot of speculations about what the abomination was. The masculine participle standing where he You've heard me kind of slip and say that a lot, refer to the abomination as a he a few times. It's unusual, and so some translations uh, still would translate it as it because it's unclear what the reference is to. 
Is this actually to a person? Is this to perhaps a statue of a person? It seems unclear. And so I wouldn't make any arguments on the basis of that, that one uh, word. Though some people would. We know from Josephus' account of the siege of Jerusalem and the wars in Judea that several abominations took place in the temple in the first century. The zealots fought in the temple and shed blood, setting up a false high priest to do their bidding. The Romans, after they took the city, set up their standards there. But in the end, we're left with educated guesses about the precise fulfillment of Daniel's abomination. There's a lot we do not know about that period of time. This, of course, has led many people to believe this refers instead to a future temple and a future desolation. But Jesus' answer is plainly given in response to the disciples' question about the destruction of the current temple, which we know was indeed desolated and destroyed in A.D. 70, never to be rebuilt to this day. And so I think it is a mistake to to read the future into this passage. Now, others raise the question, could there be a future happening that is the ultimate fulfillment of this? Are there aspects that we could read or see as perhaps future? Cranfield suggests in Jesus' own view, so that's quite a statement to say this is what Jesus viewed. He says the historical and the eschatological are mingled and that the final eschatological event is seen through the transparency of the immediate historical. It's the final eschatological event is seen through the transparency of the immediate historical. In this view, the events of 70 AD and other great historical judgments like God's judgment on Babylon. These are foreshadowings. They're like a window or a transparency or a rehearsal through which we see the events of the end that are yet to come. I will say there is biblical precedent for this, uh, this idea of, of the historical and the eschatological being mingled. Um, we have examples in, in the prophets where they spoke of multiple events in the span of a few verses, especially referring some at times to the first coming of Christ, and then in the span of verses speaking of the, the future coming of Christ. And so some would see that here. Okay? We have the example of Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 61, and he stopped mid-sentence and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke chapter 4, verse 21. 
The rest of the sentence was not finished by Jesus, for it was not yet the time of vengeance that Isaiah spoke about. That's Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 and following. One of the problems or the concerns that people have with this view is that this side of the future will never see clearly what is or isn't future. How will we know? Well, this is this is past. This is future. This is it's difficult or to say that that the the events of of the temple's destruction in 70 A.D. um, are a transparency, a window through which we see see the second coming. How much does this text then pattern the end time? It's a difficult thing. And certainly there is much about the future that we don't understand. So I respect those who hold this view. And I I would say this in conclusion about this. um, What is plain from this, this passage, is that the temple would be destroyed just as Jesus had said. And that it would be preceded by a sign recognizable to the elect people of Judea. Whether we can parse it out and figure what happened in the first century that was assigned to them, I leave to the scholars to debate. This took place in the years leading up to the temple's destruction in 70 AD. However, this judgment and the sign that preceded it is also a type of the judgment to come. That is, not in the way that some would expect, perhaps with their charts of future events mapped out, as though by reading this we can get a chronology of end times. But this event like all of the judgments of God in history, point us to the one that is to come. Our Lord does not change. He works both salvation and judgment in every generation until his return. And that, brothers and sisters, is what you need to concern yourself with. With the knowledge that God is judge. And he will act in history as he chooses to to judge those who turn away from him. A sign was given. Was given to the people in Jesus' generation who would see the destruction of their temple. And a response is called for. Jesus continues, verse 14. Yes, we're still in verse 14. Jesus says, then, 
as following this sign, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Immediately, on recognition of the sign, the people are to flee away from the temple. Instead of trusting in the temple or their own might as the zealots did, the elect are to leave the temple and the city to the judgment of God. Tradition has been passed down by the historian Eusebius that the Judean believers in the first century fled to the city of Pella across the mountains beyond the Jordan. They did not put their trust in the temple, but they put their trust in God. Jesus' instructions here as he talks to his disciples express compassion for the plight of the vulnerable. Alas, or woe for the women who are pregnant and nursing infants. It will be hard for them. He also offers clarity for a time of crisis. How we need that. In essence, what he says when he's talking about in verse 15 and 16, let the one who's on the housetop not go down, don't even enter his house to grab something. The one who is field, not to turn back to take his cloak. Jesus is saying that your life is more important than an extra garment and supplies and these kinds of things. Go before it is too late. Flee the wrath to come. And at this time, he urges also prayer. For prayer in crisis is more valuable than any goods. These principles remain true today. In times of crisis, times of God's judgment throughout history. Will we value external things, goods of this world? Or will we cling to Christ? Will we flee to Him? Only those that rely on the Lord will endure trials and suffering. Jesus then declares the severity of the tribulation and the hope given the elect in verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. 
That is strong language. And that strong language has led many to conclude this cannot be referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, but must refer to a future great tribulation. Or others would see in the destruction of Jerusalem a great pattern of this yet future tribulation. However, this word is spoken in the context of the temple being destroyed shortly after Jesus' death within that same generation. And as we will see next week, Jesus explicitly says this will happen during the time of this generation. We will again touch on these issues next week. But I think it is important to understand something of the context in the first century. Josephus recounts circumstances so disturbing that the slaughter, the starvation, and the cannibalism that happened at that time is difficult to imagine. This was no ordinary day of trouble. Certainly none like it had occurred yet in the history of God's people. And none has been seen uh, since that day in terms of the, the massive scale of the, the destruction and the, the wickedness and, and the, the people of God slaughtering themselves. Continue in reading in verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. What an encouraging word. That this terrible judgment will be, not might be, but that he has shortened the days so that some might be saved. He did this for his chosen people. Those who have called upon his name. It has been noted if the days of this great suffering during the siege of Jerusalem was not cut short by God, the Jews would have essentially wiped each other out. We know that God did cut short the siege of Jerusalem for it lasted only five months. And if that seems like a long time, consider that many sieges lasted for many years, even a decade. Brothers and sisters, here is evidence that God is sovereign and merciful in all things and all times. You and I are not called to flee to the mountains, but we are only safe from the judgment that hangs over this world by taking refuge in Him. 
God's people in every generation must and will flee to him to escape the wrath to come. And if all that you care about is figuring out whether this this is all in the past or trying to fit it into the first century or trying to put it all in the future, but you cannot turn to the Lord and you do not flee to him and trust in him alone, you've missed the point of Jesus' teaching to his disciples. So we read in verses 21 and 22. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or look, there he is. Do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Jesus' final word to those in that day may be summarized. Don't let anyone deter you from your flight. We know that in the days leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem, that many false prophets arose saying the temple would not be destroyed. Josephus writes of one false prophet, an Egyptian, who led thousands of men to their deaths in battle on the Mount of Olives. Another man Menahem, son of Judas of Galilee, came to Jerusalem around A.D. 66 as if he were really a king, arrayed in royal robes. And then a few years later, in about A.D. 69, around a year before Jerusalem fell, Simon bar Giora was obeyed as to a king. Such men were not to be listened to. And they're not to be listened to today. For we are warned by the apostles that false prophets and teachers will arise in every time, in every day. We are not to pay heed to them. Jesus had already explained what to expect. He said, I have told you all things beforehand. When he comes, it will be plain to see. Verses 24 through 27. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power, great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Amen. Jesus declares that the Son of Man will come after the tribulation that took place in the days leading up to the temple's destruction. According to Matthew's account, this will happen 
immediately following the tribulation in those days. Matthew 24, verse 29. But then in Luke's account, in Luke 21, we read that Jerusalem will be trodden down in judgment by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Luke 21, verse 24. And then, Luke tells us, then, after the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, the Son of Man will come. Luke 21, verse 27. This has caused a lot of confusion. You know, if we only had one account, we could sort of follow along and sort of say, I think this means that, or... But we have these checks here, because when you read Matthew, it says something. It says immediately after those days. And so then the future says, ah, see, it must be future because Jesus does not come until immediately after this. And he hasn't come yet. But then in Luke's gospel, read the time of the Gentiles must be fulfilled. And then Jesus will come. The Son of Man will return. And so, the preterist who sees this as all in the past says, Ah, see, there's a time yet to be fulfilled. Or, they take this as metaphorical, which we'll talk about in a moment figurative language. But I think there is a simpler answer. These two accounts, one with this seeming uh, time of the Gentiles, a gap, and one speaking of the immediate coming. When we realize that what is soon to the Lord is not soon in our eyes, And when we also realize likewise that Jesus is going to make it very plain that no one knows that day or that hour of his return. We'll talk about that when we pick up Mark's gospel in a couple of weeks. And so soon is in the Lord's timing. And He does not want to tell us and he does not have to tell us when he will return. When the Son of Man will appear. The Son of Man is another figure from Daniel's visions. He appears in Daniel 7 as the one to whom the Ancient of Days gives all authority. There he is said to approach the throne of God and receive all authority. In Daniel chapter 7. Here, Jesus says that he will come on the clouds. He will come to reign, to gather his people together. We see at least three things in these verses. One, he will come 
visibly, Jesus said, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This will be seen. He will come visibly. Secondly, he will come gloriously with signs in the heavens and great power and glory. Verse 26. He will come gloriously. And thirdly, he will come to gather his people to himself. Verse 27. None of these things fit with the timing of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus was not seen coming on the clouds and the elect were not gathered from the four corners of the earth. Certainly some of the language could be taken as figurative. And that is how some would take it. God at various times described his judgment upon the nations like Babylon and Eden, Edom with language that is not to be taken in a strict literal sense as though the, the heavens fell when Babylon fell. Some would say that the signs in the heavens are merely a reference to drastic events on the world scene interpreted in the light of the divine judgment and purpose. But the language of a physical, visible coming of the Lord and a great gathering of the elect at that same time does not seem to find any any apocalyptic parallel in the scripture. It does not seem consistent with the way that the coming of Christ is spoken of in the apostles' writings. So here I would firmly depart from the preterist camp. There is something here in Jesus' discourse that is referring to the end of the age. His coming is yet to come. Interestingly, Paul echoes this when he speaks to the Thessalonians in his second letter, 2 Thessalonians, they were saying, people were saying at that time, Jesus has already returned and the, the church was in a turmoil and Jesus basically said that it is not yet. And he gives them his reasons why. He says that the coming of the Lord and the gathering together of his people, he uses both of those things that are here, isn't yet. He talks about a rebellion to come. This coming of God the Son to recreate the heavens and the earth is beyond words. These words push the limits of our, our ability to, to comprehend or to imagine this coming. We can't categorize or express what it will be like from our experience. But we can grasp from the language used by our Lord, that His coming will be real 
and glorious. My prayer is that your hope lies there in his return. It is sure and it is certain. As we conclude, I want to return to the response that Jesus called the people to. A sign was given to Jesus' generation. Judgment was coming upon the temple. And a response was called for to flee the wrath to come, to take refuge in God, to pray for and trust in God's mercy, God's promise of mercy for the sake of his people. And not to follow after those who had said Christ has returned. This call remains the same today for us to run to Christ, to look towards his coming, to find our hope in the mercy of God and not to trust in our own might. He alone can keep us from trouble in troubled times and gather us into his kingdom. Do you realize that if he did not hold back his anger, we could not stand? None of us could stand. And that the Son of Man who spoke these words would one day soon be raised up on a wooden cross to suffer and die for the sins of His people. Suffering the great judgment, the wrath of God, so that whoever looks to Him and receives Him as Lord and Savior, that is to rely on Him completely in no way of myself nothing in my hands I bring that it is all his grace and you know that whoever looks to him will indeed be gathered by his angels when he comes again in glory folks if your hope is in anything less. If your joy is found in something else, something of this world, you're going to be disappointed. Where is your confidence today? If you look back to the old Jerusalem, you will be consumed like Lot's wife when she looked back towards Sodom. She had all her eggs in the wrong basket. You will be like those who go looking for their wallet while the house is burning down and people are in danger. Who cares at that point about this world's goods? We live in Sodom today. We live in the world and we have to deal with the world. Believe me, we have cares to attend to. We're not to be like those in Thessalonica who were, uh, you know, quitting their jobs thinking Jesus is coming or he has come already. But we must not cling to the world. We have to be willing to give 
it up. We belong to another kingdom and we must hope in his return. We must flee to Christ in every generation because he alone is a refuge that will not be shaken. Remember that this week. You have a refuge that will not be shaken, though the heavens be shaken. He is coming on the clouds to gather his people. Will you be found among them on that day?